Good evening. I hope you guys have had a good week. I've enjoyed this week that the sun has reminded us of its existence. And there's once again hope in the world. There's hope that spring will come, winter will end, Brian will come back, and I will stop embarrassing myself quite so much from the stage. I spoke a couple of weeks ago, and um, I've just got to say, I've seen, I've seen quite a few of you since then, uh, and it just really touched my heart to know how impacted you were by what I said about hot donut. Seriously, I um, pour my heart and soul into a message on Sabbath, and I have lost count of the number of conversations I have had with people from this church in the last two weeks about that donut. I literally bumped into people outside our church building, and they'd be like, are you on your way to hot donut? I was like, no, it's 10 to 9 on Wednesday. I have a job. I'm going to work. But I did go to Hot Donut um, to do some fact-checking last week, and I can update you that for four sugary hot donuts, one pound, for four, someone's, yes, good news, for four cinnamony sugary hot donuts, one pound 20. So 20p for cinnamon. Good profit margin at Hot Donuts. Also, I feel like we have potentially doubled their sales in the last couple of weeks alone, so let's keep it up. I'm hoping that I can get some like Instagram sponsorship going on here, Uh, but I'll not hope too much. In all seriousness, though, I do hope that as we get to this point in our reawakening series, we've only got three weeks of it left. And I do hope and pray that as we find that God is stirring things up in us, as he's showing us things, as he's revealing new things to us, as he's reminding us of stuff, that actually things are sticking with us that we're not maybe waking up and then falling asleep again. Before I moved to Glasgow, before I owned an iPhone, uh, my mom, one of her key roles in my life was to be my live-in alarm clock. I would wake up in the morning, she would wake me up in the morning, then I'd fall back to sleep, then she'd wake me up in the morning, then I'd fall back to sleep, then she'd wake me up in the morning, then then I'd fall back to sleep. And we'd, we'd keep this game going for about 12 to 13 goes, and then eventually I would get up and face the day. Josh quoted... Pete Hughes last week from his book, All Things New, and he said that if we want to see our cities revived, if we want to see the people in Glasgow come to know who God is, come awake to who he is alive in Jesus, then the church must wake up. And I do believe that God has been doing a work of stirring us, of waking us over the last however many number of weeks. And I hope and pray that I guess we're not doing like the Sunday equivalent of waking up and then hitting the snooze button. And I want to hope that as I hear from God in this season, that um, maybe as I I take notes or I um, hear him speak to me on a Sunday or during the week or whatever it may be or whatever the Holy Spirit's stirring up in me, I want to um, pray that actually I won't hit snooze, but that that I'll get up and I'll face the day that's out there, that I'll remember, that I'll let it sink in. And I guess my challenge to you even before I begin tonight is if God's speaking to you at all in this season, take time this week to sit and listen to him and remember write it down. Don't forget. We've three weeks left of our current teaching series to go, and today uh, we want to take some time to think about humility in relation to a time of reawakening. Now, full disclaimer, humility was something that, in terms of humility with regards to my faith, humility with regards to uh, coming awake to God, it was not something that I thought about a whole lot before this week, and I found it actually to be an incredibly humbling experience to get to this point. And yet, It's felt important because as I've looked over um, 
a key bit of scripture that we love to repeat here in this church and that kind of sits at the very middle of what we believe to be our biblical mandate for um, our mission to lay the foundation for long-lasting reawakening. As I've looked again at the Bible, it struck me this week that humility and our humility towards God is not something that's at the sidelines of any time of reawakening and it's not like an optional add-on or like a desirable bit of criteria, but actually it's like right bang at the center, at the forefront. There's a bit in the Bible in Second Chronicles 7, and we, we say it a lot here. Um, and in this moment in Scripture, King Solomon has just finished building the temple for God to dwell in. And then the text tells us, The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin and will heal their land. The pattern for God's people up to this point was one of routinely forgetting and then rejecting the God who had rescued them until they would be brought to the end of themselves and they would need him to come back and redeem them heal them, make them whole again, be with them again, and they would cry out to him for help. And if we want to see God move, if we want to see God um, come to Glasgow and move in power through his presence and transform people's lives and see people come awake to him in that way, then humbling ourselves becomes less of uh, an invitation that could be a little add-on, but actually an invitation that is a condition, it's a requirement if my people called by my name will humble themselves. I hope you've had uh, a good weekend, and I hope that if uh, you have had a couple of Sabbath days since we last, since we saw since we saw each other in this capacity at least, I hope that they have been good and full of God rest for you. I've had one of those weekends this weekend where I feel like all of my friends' birthdays have come at once, and it's just been incredible. I'm about one slice away from becoming Colin the Caterpillar. But no complaints, I love celebrating birthdays. I, when I was younger, I used to have very elaborate birthday parties. I think my mom like, wanted in another life to be a party planner extraordinaire, so sort of lived vicariously through me. Um, I remember having a cats and dogs themed birthday party. Now, just, not just like any cats and dogs, but like specifically in relation to the movie Cats and Dogs. And I sent out little invites and it would say like, you're invited to my party, you are a dog. And then people would have to come dress as a dog. They didn't get to choose whether they were a cat or a dog. I told them whether they were a cat or a dog. I also had um, an underwear-themed party, which you'll be glad to know I don't have a picture of to show you tonight. But what happened at that party was we like made pants, and then we drew on them and designed things on them. And that was definitely my mother's idea of a party, not so much mine. I remember my favorite birthday party I ever had was a pop stars party. Now, I, the pop stars party was definitely my idea. You can't tell, but I am having the time of my life. It's everything nine-year-old Laura wanted in the world. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to sit, be a performer. I wanted to be celebrated. I wanted to wear a pipe cleaner microphone around my head. Because of who I am as a person and a lifelong habit that was beginning even then of sort of connecting my value to my successes and how I would perform, when I start to think about humility as a subject, I think of times when I have felt humbled by my own failure. That's where my mind goes to. When I think of humility, I think of ultimate Frisbee. 
I think of year after year after year going out to summer camp, to staff training, where I would be surrounded by fanatical, ultimate Frisbee-loving Canadians, introduced to a sport that I did not know existed. I would think of year after year after year, someone would say that really we should call it a flying disc because Frisbee is a registered trademark of the Wamo Toy Company. I think of year after year after year trying to play that sport for an hour and a half in the week and finding that my brain and my hands could not collaborate to bring success for me. And that's because I've come to associate humility as a stingy, sore sense of my own inadequacy. The world defines humility as becoming aware of our own limitations, our own shortcomings, even our own inferiority. A few definitions I found online this week um, said, humility is the quality of not being proud because you're aware of your bad qualities. I think that's a little harsh. Humility is the quality of not thinking you're better than other people, maybe a bit fairer. Humility is the quality of having a modest or low view of one's importance. According to an online thesaurus, the world defines humility as at the very least similar to shyness, lowliness, non-resistance, passiveness, self-abasement, subjection, submissiveness, and timidity. And if that's humility, if having a low view of my importance is humility, then I could almost be fooled into thinking that I am a humble person because I've historically struggled with low self-esteem. Maybe that's your starting point tonight. Maybe you think like, I don't know what I have to hear about humility because I don't have a really high view of my own importance. Maybe you're thinking I don't actually really like myself at all. And yet that it can't be right. That's not what we're called to. Second Timothy says the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. Biblical humility, humility that belongs in this reawakening series, the sort of humility that God would call his people to before he acts must be more than some sort of quality or behavior modification whereby we become more aware of our own limitations and that's it. How will we define humility today? We could do what any self-respecting Christian person would do when they want to know what the Bible says about something and we can look to C.S. Lewis and see what he had to say. We often quote him. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. When I started to look at humility this week, that just popped up everywhere. And you might think, okay, great, put it on a cushion, let's go home. But I noticed a couple of issues this week. First being that actually C.S. Lewis didn't say it. Rick Warren said it in A Purpose Driven Life first. For some reason, we just misquote it to C.S. Lewis. And the second thing being that for me, and I don't know if you're anything like me, but I just kind of get stuck in an existential loop when I read that of thinking about myself less, thinking about myself, thinking about myself, thinking about myself less, thinking about myself. And I actually end up just thinking about myself and not getting anywhere beyond that. And that doesn't seem like enough. I want to propose that the sort of humility that belongs in a reawakening series, the sort of humility that we want to think about this evening is humility that is rooted in an expanded vision of who God is, that so much as it's to do with less of us, it's leading us into more of him. That I might be aware of my own limitations, yes, but in light of how incredibly good he is. And this sort of humility wouldn't be like a quality or a characteristic or a personality type or a behavior that I might adapt, but it would actually be a choice of my heart where I choose to humble myself 
by turning from my pride that would put me at the center of it all and to look to an appropriately huge esteem of Jesus. I want God to hear my prayers. I want God to move in our city and in our communities and in our friendships and in our families and heal our land and forgive our sin and reveal himself again and reawaken our hearts. So I want to humble myself. So how do we, how do we begin? Something C.S. Lewis actually did say in his book, Mere Christianity, is if anyone would like to acquire humility, I think I can tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud and a biggish step. At least nothing can be done before it. If you, think you're not, if you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Talking about our struggle with pride, he's not talking about any sort of like measured or appropriate admiration or appreciation of other people or for ourselves, but he's talking about pride as this shared state of our souls where we put ourselves at the very center where we are number one and then everything we do and are and think flows out of that place. And it challenges me to consider how I am a proud person and that reveals itself through my self-obsession, whether I have a low or high opinion of myself at any given moment. And this sneaky problem with pride would keep me at the center of my own life and my own mind and my own heart and my own priorities and plans until all too soon without me maybe even noticing it, I've fallen asleep to the God of the universe and what he's calling me into, that he's calling me into more. True biblical humility that leads to our reawakening is always in relation to something that's beyond ourselves. And the fortunate thing for us is that that thing beyond ourselves is an incredibly good and worthy God who deserves it. In humility, we bow down, but we bow down to look up at who God is and we humble ourselves in light of who he is in response to who he is because of who he is and we see in second chronicles that God says he wants us to seek him he wants us to seek his face and as such this um, request from God becomes less of a like he doesn't want us to humble himself because he himself is proud but because he wants us to know him to truly know him as he can be known and to know him is to be humbled before him because he is God Humility is what God desires because it's a natural response to knowing him. That is what will come out of us as we know him more. And I want to consider today that humbling ourselves is not a punishment or a burden, but an act of worship that brings us joy because it releases us from self-dependence. It reveals Jesus as the one true savior of the world. It highlights God's intervention in our lives and in the lives of other people. And it is indeed itself what reconciles us to him. I was thinking earlier this week about a few things that Christians like. Um, things Christians like. Christians like using words that no one else uses in common speech. If you can find me someone who doesn't already love Jesus, who says something like, I'm intentionally pursuing them, I'll give you 10 points. <laughs> Stuff Christians like. We like the song Waymaker. We like it a lot. We want to sing it forever. We like personality tests. My goodness, do we like a personality test or anything vaguely resembling a personality test, whether it's Strength Finders or Love Languages or the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, we love a personality test. Maybe the only thing we love more than a personality test is that we love to take a personality test. We love to take something that's a relatively complex way of understanding the human personality and then we love to make it into a meme. Because how else would I know what Starbucks drink I am or what flower in the woods I am according to my personality type or indeed what Bible character I am? I was looking at this this week 
and I am an ENTJ on the Myers-Briggs, so apparently that makes me the Apostle Paul. Now, if I'd seen this aged 17, I would have been, at the very least, a little disappointed. And yet when I saw this this week, I was actually, I felt validated. Not because this is in any way, this doesn't mean anything ever, but because when I think about Paul now, I've, I think about how God, God brings me back to some of his letters and certain portions of the scripture that Paul has written. And at this point in my life, he's like, Laura, camp out here. Because there's something about how Paul sees himself and understands himself and his calling in relation to Jesus that just like speaks to my soul. And I was brought back to it again this week. As you glance over some of Paul's writing, you could um, at a first look see his authority. You can see his confidence in his calling. But I think at closer inspection, what I see at least is I see a, a guy who's like thrust into this crazy too big for him thing. And he goes in weak, trembling, terrified, confident of nothing but Jesus. And then Jesus shows up for him in humility, that heart of worship, that humble heart of worship. We say to God, I need you. And it releases us from self-dependence. There's a bit um, where Paul writes to the new Christians in Corinth. And he says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I'm so sorry. I'm going to say that word quite a lot. Paul is confident of his identity and his calling as an apostle. If you read his letters, he, he basically every single time will sign off as himself at the start. Paul, an apostle called by Jesus to da-da-da-da-da. He's confident of his calling. He even is especially confident of his calling to preach. He says earlier in uh, the text, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He knows what he is called to do. And yet he recalls going to this uh, community of people in Corinth in weakness, with trembling, utterly dependent on the only thing that he had confidence in, which was Jesus and what he'd done and who he was. When we walk humbly with God, confident of nothing that we're holding in our hands. It draws us to that place where we say, God, I need you. I need you to do the thing because I can't do it. And utter dependence on God is not usually our natural inclination. Usually we want to take hold of all our qualifications and all our experience and all our training and all our hard work and all our support from our family and all our money and everything that we have. And we want to throw that at the thing that God has called us to do in the hopes that we will succeed. And yet we see something incredible in Paul because he experiences God's power when he goes in powerless, when he goes in humble and empty-handed. In weakness and in trembling, there is a demonstration of the Spirit's power for him. Paul has come to know the God who fills the gap when he is small, when he cannot, when he is humble before him. Because he preaches from that place of humility, I love too that he talks about how they don't see him. They don't put their faith in human wisdom, but actually they put their faith and their trust in the one true living God who he is representing. 
If you read in Second Chronicles, Second uh, Corinthians, sorry, eleven and twelve, we see that Paul has every earthly reason to be self-confident as an apostle. He says, "Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I also dare to boast about." Are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. And yet he says, "If I must boast, I will boast of the things that shows my weakness, because he has come to know that space where he is humble, where he is weak, where he cannot. He's come to know that as the space where God moves incredible ways for him." God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He's like, if that's where it happens, then take me there. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to go. That's where Jesus's power comes and rests on me. He knows that in the spaces where he is limited, he's making space for the limitless God to show up and be God. And for people to see that and come awake to who he is. In humility, we say to God, you are the real thing. You are God and I am not. And when we recognize that quickly, we release what is God's back to God. That brings us relief. Best example of this I could find, um, a guy we've come to know affectionately as first name John, surname the Baptist, um, just introduced in the Gospel of John simply as a man sent from God whose name was John. I like that. Gospel author uh, John goes on to write about other John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness to testify concerning that light. What light? The light that cannot be overcome by darkness. He's talking about Jesus. So that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We are in a reawakening series. We exist as a church because we believe that the one true light did come into the world, and yet the world does not recognize or receive him as we should. And in a world where Jesus is not recognized and where Jesus is not received, we have an opportunity to step out of the pride that would have us competing with each other and creating a name for ourselves and instead humbly point to the one real hope for the world. Pride pits us against each other as we find ourselves and make ourselves and create ourselves and present ourselves and perfect ourselves. It will always be in competition. We'll always want to be richer, better than the other person. But John shows us a different way and it leads people to come alive in Jesus. He recognizes quickly that Jesus is the promised savior of the world and that he is not. Even before he baptizes Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and God says, this is my son whom I love. John knows that this is the Messiah and he says, it says in John chapter one, he did not fail to confess but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. In his quick recognition of who he's not. He's not self-debasing about it, but he humbly releases what is God's back to God. He's ample opportunity as the story goes to build his own name. The religious leaders come to him and they're like, who are you then? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he says, no, he refuses to compete or to be a counterfeit. And as a result, repeated throughout the text at the start of the book of John is the disciples newfound joy as they find Jesus to be the real thing. They say, we've found the Messiah. We've found the one Moses wrote about and the prophets wrote about. And then they bring other people to Jesus as well. And the awakening just like ripples through them as John lets go and points to Jesus. And John, John's humility doesn't make him bitter, but it makes him joyful. The religious leaders come to John and they say, um, 
this other guy is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And he says, my joy is complete. He says, my joy is complete. It's exactly what he wants to see. Because he looks at Jesus and the humble cry of his heart is, he must become greater, I must become less. Will we humbly point to Jesus as if there's no other hope for the world? Will we step out of our pride long enough to humbly point to Jesus as if there's no other hope for the world? In humility, we say, I need you to help. Our humility highlights God's intervention. God said to Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. We see this truth play out so many times throughout the Bible. There's endless examples. A few whistle-stop tour through a few examples. Um, Queen Esther, iconic Old Testament story. The stakes are so high, God's people are condemned to die unjustly, and she is uniquely positioned to plead for mercy from the king, but she knows that there's a law, which means that she could die for even going into that room, even walking towards the king. She could be condemned to die as well. And she's terrified, and she's reluctant, and yet in that, what she does is she humbles herself, and she calls the people around her to also humble themselves. She gets her attendance, and she gets God's people to do a three-day fast, and then she says, when this is done, I'll go to the king, and if I die, I die. And yet in that story, God shows his favor. The king shows her favor. She does not die. God's people are saved, and God is revealed. Even in the one book of the Bible where his name is not explicitly mentioned, his intervention is obvious, and he's revealed to be the God who's faithful to his people that he loves. Gideon calls himself the least in his family of the weakest tribe and yet God calls him a mighty warrior and calls him to lead an army against the Midianite army. An army so big, according to Judges chapter 7, that they um, had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Not a nice image. He approaches battle with 32,000 men. And you think, okay, good, maybe you've got a shot. And yet God says, you've too many men. If you win this way, Israel will boast against me and say my own strength saved me. So God tells Gideon to reduce his army bit by bit by bit to 300 men to ensure that his intervention is obvious enough and that his strength is shown and not human strength. Do we ever feel humbled in this way? Do we ever feel like stripped back or where we have to set down human resources or we just feel like we have empty hands or that God is asking us to actually reduce something to, in, in order to see him step in and fill the space. We see Gideon's humility and his surrender. I can only imagine what he must have felt like when God said, now let all the other men go home. God doesn't just take the other men home. He says to Gideon, let all the other men go home. And in humility, he had to, he had to let them. He needed God's help and God helped and God was glorified. David, there's an enemy, no Israelite will dare approach. David is the youngest in his family. He's not a soldier. He's basically sent to deliver the sandwiches and the cheese to his brothers on the front line to see how they're doing. He hears the giant taunting the people and he volunteers to fight him. And the king says, no, you can't do that. You're not trained to do that. But he has been trained to trust in the God who helps him, who's with him by fighting lions, by fighting bears. And he knows his own story. He knows the God who's been in it. And so he stands in front of the giant and he takes off his armor and he sets down weapons and he instead goes in with a few stones in his hand. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Those moments in our lives highlight God's intervention. Are we willing to walk into those spaces where we set down the armor and we set down the weapons and we take whatever God has put in our hands and we ask him to move? Are we willing to go into those spaces to see him move? In humility, we say, you loved me first. Can't talk about humility and not briefly touch upon Philippians chapter 2. It says this, it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And it goes on. It blows my mind to think that the gospel is a story of God himself humbling himself that he might be reconciled to me. Like I can't quite wrap my head around the fact that God and I were enemies, we were estranged. And what he did with that was that he, in his perfection, humbled himself, emptied himself in this miraculous and mysterious way of his God rights to come to earth as a human baby, to take on my flesh, that the things of my flesh might be forgiven, that I might be reconciled to him again. I think of kids falling out on the playground and I think of families where there's estrangement and you think of celebrities warring over Twitter and you think, okay, where there's that sort of disagreement and where there's that sort of estrangement, like there, for there to be any sort of reconciliation, one party will have to humble themselves and come towards the other, and yet everything in our gut tells us that it should be the guilty party. And yet in the best story of all time, I'm the guilty party, and God himself humbled himself to come towards me so that all that's left for me to do is for my humility to meet his in the middle. He's done the hard stuff, he loved me first. Romans says God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus' humility in going to the cross to die for our sins is our example, and it is what saves us. St. Augustine argued that humility was the most important Christian virtue of all because he argued that without humility, there'd be no salvation for us. There'd be no way to be reconciled to God without the humility of God. It's not something I've ever thought about when I think about the gospel. That's not my key point, is that it's about the humility of God, and yet it's there. And suddenly on this side of, of Jesus, I look again at the Second Chronicles passage, and it reads a little differently to me, because where maybe before, or if I, if I don't think of the gospel, and I don't think of what Jesus has done, it might seem like, okay, God is um, going to he's distant from his people and then he says if you do this I will return to you but suddenly you see in the big story of the Bible that actually um, it says in 2nd Timothy he has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we've done but because of his own purpose and grace this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time we look again at the story and we see that God did something to humble himself before the beginning of time 
which means when he calls his people to humble themselves, we are always responding to the God who loves us first. We don't need to do this first. He's humbled himself so that we can respond to that love, so that we can be with him, so that we can know him, so that I can be his friend again. And when I humble myself, I do so in that moment. When I give my life to Jesus for the first time, that's an act of humbling myself because it's a moment of surrender, surrendering control, being willing to say, okay, Jesus, I give you my life. I I give you my whole life. I'm gonna follow you with all that I am. That's a moment to humble myself, but also every day when I have the chance again to either act out of pride or to humble myself once more and say, God, okay, I, I set this back down. I give you control again. I surrender my life to you again. I humble myself before you again. I, I will pour myself out because you've done that first, because you poured yourself out for me. And I wonder if we're, for some of us today, do do you need to take a first step of humility in giving your life to Jesus? Maybe you've been in and out of here for a little while or maybe uh, you're brand new or maybe you've been here for a long time and maybe it's something that you just think like, you know, someday or it's on the shelf or it's not for me or, you know, I feel the nudge but I'm just not sure when or, or, or how this is gonna work but actually the Holy Spirit is maybe nudging you that it's time to humble yourself before God to give your life to him because he's the God who loved you first and he's the God who exalts the humble. He's the God who lifts you up. And he wants to be in that right relationship with you. Maybe it's not the first time that you need to do that, but maybe there's an invitation for so many of us tonight where we just need to humble ourselves again. And it might be that we need to set down control. It might be that we need to bow down to look up to who God is. It might need to be that we just need to get on our knees again to worship him. Will we humble ourselves? Will we come towards the God who's poured himself out for us? I have a few challenges. I'm gonna actually invite you to stand up because we'll just lead directly into our time of response tonight. A few challenges. And I wanna actually pray us through these. So if you wanna just close your eyes, do whatever helps you to focus. Lord God, would you show us if there are places where we've put ourselves at the center? Would you put a finger on our pride just now? Would you? shine a light on that for us? If there's anywhere where we put ourselves at the center, would you shine a light on it? And if you want to tonight, just choose in your own heart to bow down again and to look up at who God is, to say, I humble myself before you. Here's my pride, but humble me, Lord. And God, would you show us if there's anything we need to let go of, that you might be glorified. Maybe there's a situation you're trying to control. Maybe there's something you're trying to make happen for yourself. Maybe there's something in your life in which you're trying to just play God a little bit. Or maybe there's something that he's inviting you into that seems big, it seems scary. If there are things come to mind now or as you continue to reflect, just it's an invitation to let go, to let go. And then finally, maybe the most important thing, God, would you remind us of your love for us? Before we go any further, would you remind us of your love? 
because God, in your love, it's so easy to humble ourselves before you. And your love is limitless. It's steadfast, it's faithful. If you wanna give your life to Jesus for the first time tonight or you want to rededicate your life to him, you can pray something really simple uh, along with me just now. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you that you humbled yourself for me to die for my sin, that I might be raised to life with you. I give my life to you. I want to follow you all the days of my life. To fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with the joy of my salvation as I let go, as I surrender my life to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.